Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have two guests. We have Faith Purnell and Jane Miranda. Faith graduated from Portland State University in 2013. She is an alumna of ASHA's Minority Student Leadership Program, Class of 2010. Most of her career experience is in acute care, working on call at multiple local hospitals. Currently, she is an SLP and clinical supervisor within the VA healthcare system, working across the continuum of care from ICU to outpatient, including the ALS multidisciplinary clinic. She is an adjunct instructor at a local university. Since 2017, she has volunteered as an ASHA student to empowered professional step mentor. She has received three ACE awards from ASHA. She is certified in MBSIMP and LSVT. Her clinical interests include validated tools to interpret instrumental swallow studies, implementation science, and programs designed to increase the representation of ethnically and racially diverse clinicians in healthcare. Jane Miranda graduated from Teachers College, Columbia University, with a master's degree in bilingual speech and language pathology in 2010. She is currently an acute care SLP at a large Trauma One Academic Medical Center and adjunct faculty at a local university. Across the country, in three hospitals, her primary practice has always been adult acute care with intermittent supplemental caseloads in outpatient adults and pediatrics, inpatient rehab, and briefly in the NICU. Additionally, Jane has supervised graduate student field placements in South America, East, and West Africa. Jane is a graduate of the ASHA Leadership Development Program. Much of her career has focused on program development, including fees, competency protocols, and scaffolding a supportive and enriching fellowship year. Clinical passions include supervision and mentorship of graduate students and clinical fellows, dysphagia diagnostics, and documentation of clinical reasoning. Faith and Jane met in 2017 and since then have worked together at two different hospitals in acute care. Currently, they work at separate but affiliated hospitals connected by a giant bridge in the sky, allowing them to meet up during the workday. They not only connect on their clinical interests, but also support each other regarding the challenges and obstacles they face as queer women of color in the field of SLP. Together, Faith and Jane are passionate about evidence-based practice, implementation science, equal and equitable patient care, and increasing representation of minorities in healthcare. Together, they guest lecture at graduate programs on dysphagia topics, recently presented at an international implementation science conference, and collaborate for a local SLP journal club. This was such an awesome conversation. I could talk with these women all day long. So I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Faith and Jane. They are just total rock stars. If anybody is out in the Portland area, I'm so jealous that you guys get to hang out with them. So hope you all enjoy this conversation. 
welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MetaSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. All right. Good morning, Faith and Jane. Good morning. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me. We're happy to be here. Thank you for having us here. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Faith, if you want to tell the people a little bit, tell the people a little bit about who you are. So my name is Faith Purnell. My pronouns are she, her, and I am a medical speech language pathologist. Uh, the majority of my clinical experience has been in acute care, um, but a couple of years ago, I transitioned to a position within the VA, and so now I consider myself a generalist. I work across the continuum of care from acute care to um, a subacute, inpatient rehab, outpatient, and then I'm also our um, SLP representative for our ALS multidisciplinary clinic, and then I'm also an uh, assistant adjunct at Portland State, my alma mater. Uh, my clinical interests are upper airway disorders, standardized tools for swallow instrumentation, and recruitment and retention of folks from underrepresented backgrounds. Beautiful. Awesome. And Jane, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Um, so I'm Jane. I use she, her pronouns. I graduated in 2010 with a master's in bilingual speech pathology from Teachers College, Columbia University. My primary practice has also always been in adult acute care, but I've held some supplemental caseloads in outpatient adult and pediatrics, inpatient rehab, and then briefly in the NICU. I'm currently working at a large Trauma One academic medical center, and I'm also adjunct faculty at our local university. I'm really passionate about supervision and creating a supportive mentorship environment, and I teach my students and fellows to think and hone those critical thinking skills skills instead of doing that step-by-step process, like this is just how you do the job for X, Y, and Z. Um, So I supervise in the hospital setting, and I've also had the opportunity to supervise graduate students in practicum externships abroad. And then in addition to supervision, my career has also focused on program development. So establishing fees programs, creating competency protocols, and then scaffolding and enriching the fellowship year. Awesome. I love it. You guys are rock stars. Cool. All right. We try. We try. Yeah. <laughs> just sit back and listen here today. All right. What do, where do you guys want to start? What do you want to dive into first? Well, I think we could start by talking about how we came to find implementation science. And it might be helpful just to give a little bit of background on our relationship. We have both a personal, you know, we're in friends and we enjoy each other's company, but we're also really nice um, compliments to each other. I think clinically we've worked together at two prior hospitals um, and we have a lot of the same passions and we get, you know, revved up about similar things. And so I think it's been really nice having Jane as a support you know, for things that I'm going through beyond clinical stuff, just from a clinician standpoint. And um, so when one of us gets roped into something, we kind of like pull the other one into it. 
Um, and so that's sort of what happened with implementation science. I heard a really staggering statistic that it takes 17 years for something to go from routine practice to, or sorry, from evidence and basic research to routine practice. And I was shocked by that, but I also felt like, well, that kind of tracks with what I've seen clinically. And so, um, that kind of got my wheels turning. And then I recently learned that the other part of that statistic was that it takes 17 years for only 14% of the basic research to become routine practice. And I was right. I was just like, wow. And I do think that a lot of listeners, and I know this is true for me and probably Jane as well, that sometimes you'll be reading an article and you're like, this is totally tracking. This is such a great idea. I love this. And then you look at the date it was published and you're like, this was from 10 or 15 years ago. Like, where has this been? And that's exactly what implementation science is trying to minimize or mitigate is that gap. And so when I heard about this, I started talking to Jane about it. And I was like, I feel like this is so much of what we struggle with, getting the evidence to our patients quickly for dysphagia specifically. And then um, Jane found the MGH conference um, it's called, um, what is it called? CSD implementation sciences for all in CSD. And that was back in April. And we ended up presenting during their lightning rounds, um, on a project. Jane had this idea. And so we kind of rolled with it and that really has like lit a fire. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And what's so funny is like, I'll, you know, I'll email people to have them come on the podcast and like, Oh, what do you want me to talk about? And I'm like, Oh, this paper was, you know, so wonderful. We've been talking about it a lot, you know, with my colleagues and they're like, Oh, I wrote that paper 15 years ago. And I'm like, well, can we still talk about it? Like we're just hearing about it. I don't know what to tell you. Like (laughs) it's happened a few times, you know, and, and it's crazy that, yeah, it's just crazy. You know, it's just some things have just been sitting in journals for so many years and haven't gotten out to the clinicians. And so that's really the whole mission behind this podcast is just let's get the, get it out of the, you know, dusty old journals and, to the people. and get it in the hands of the clinicians. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And I think too, one thing that I've heard a lot as a clinician is, oh, there's not enough research on this. There's not a research, enough research on that. And while I completely agree with that, I don't feel like we're using the research we do have. You know, I feel like what we do have is really underutilized. And so, again, that's where um, implementation science comes in. And I also want to give the caveat that we don't consider ourselves experts in implementation science. We just have this kind of emerging confidence and interest, and we really appreciate what implementation science offers clinicians, specifically with swallowing and swallowing disorders. Do you agree with that, Jane? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. But I think we need that perfect marriage too. You know, we need the researchers that are wanting to get the information out there and then we need the clinicians that are wanting to receive it and, and use it. Yes. 100%. Yeah. And cultivating those relationships between the researchers and clinicians is a huge part of implementation science. Um, cause that communication ensures success from all the angles. Um, and the researchers want to know what we need to know. You know, they want to be researching and studying the concepts that are actually useful and applicable to the clinicians and ultimately the patients. So it it comes from all angles. It's true. So I guess I can start by just giving an overview of the definition of implementation science. So implementation science is the study of methods and strategies that facilitate the adoption of evidence-based practice and research into routine use. And so essentially, the reason why a treatment method has been um, proven to work, but has not been integrated into practice, that gap 
which is often referred to as the no-do gap or the knowledge action gap or the evidence practice gap. And so implementation science wants to systematically close that gap um, and decrease that time. And so um, one thing that is kind of integral to implementation science is that it's interdisciplinary. There's no way around it. That's just how it has to be for good reason. And for the purposes of implementation science, when they talk about, when we talk about evidence-based practice, we're not necessarily talking about the traditional triangle that we're all used to talking about, where it's, you know, the client perspective, our clinician expertise, and then the scientific literature. When they say evidence-based practice in implementation science, they're really just talking about the scientific literature that's undergone rigor and is considered to be widely accepted and effective. And we'll try to give some examples throughout our chat just to kind of make it more concrete. But um, yeah, it gives us a framework to approach these topics and to decrease that gap. Awesome. Do you want to get into some key terms, Faye? Yeah, should we? Okay. <laughs> get it. Okay, so key terms. Uh, implementation science, like many fields um, in the medical field or related to speech pathology, there are so many terms and a lot of them, different words, but mean the same thing. From what I've gathered, a lot of it is can be geographically based or from what, you know, are you coming from pharmacy? Are you coming from speech pathology? Are you coming from some other subspecialty. Um, but essentially what you'll see is the terms theories, models, and frameworks. And I think of theories, models, and frameworks as roadmaps. So this is how you're going to guide the work that you do. And it allows you to organize your thoughts and ideas in a really clear and intentional way. And importantly, whatever framework, model, or theory you choose is going to be highly dependent on what your core clinical question is and what you're trying to accomplish. And this is where I would definitely refer folks to the resources and references that we've provided because this concept in and of itself can be kind of difficult to grasp. And typically in the, you know, papers and presentations that we've read and attended, they're using a lot of visuals. And that's for a very good reason. The visuals really help um, make it clear to the reader what the author's talking about. And um, there's something like over 60 theories, models, and frameworks that you can use. But I think the major takeaway is that it's a roadmap and it really guides you step-by-step step on your process to the implementation strategy, which we'll kind of talk about. Did I miss anything, Jane? No, I don't think so. I just want to emphasize how important the visual resources are. Um, it's not just like, here's a theory, read about the theory, and then work it into the project that you want to do. There are actual charts that you fill in as you go. You can like print them out, but they're, they're also virtual. Everything is very colorful and just kind of leading you from one step to the next, because this is this is a concept that is kind of outside of the SLP realm, but it is meant for the medical field. It is meant for SLPs. Um, and so they, as complex as it is, they want to make it very, very accessible and useful. And so those visuals and the tools online are so, so helpful. And I think I would also say, too, that Jane and I, for different projects or ideas that we have, we might start with one theory or framework and be like, okay, this is it. And halfway through, I'm like, Jane, this isn't working. And she's like, nope, we picked the wrong, we picked the wrong one. So then we have to like go back <laughs> and kind of start over. But what I love about that is you get to 
the core of the issue. It's part of like the process of working out some of these things. And so ultimately on the other side, it's even more clear what your kind of mission is or what your goal is. So, okay. So then the implementation strategy. So these are the actions that are taken to improve the uptake of the evidence-based approach that's been identified. So the evidence-based approach is something that's already been proven through the scientific literature to improve dysphagia outcomes. And boiled down, the evidence-based approach is what is being implemented, and the implementation strategy is how it becomes routine practice. So to offer an example, we know the rates for uh, silent aspiration following prolonged endotracheal intubation are high. We know that. We also know that a swallow study and instrumentation is required to identify pathophysiology, guide the treatment plan, and so maybe the strategy to get those patients to their swallow studies is automated order sets. Maybe if someone's been intubated for greater than 48 hours, there's an automatic order that's generated that orders a modified. Or um, maybe the lead SLP on your team, their job is to, you know, screen all of the um, charts in the ICU and identify people and then ask the physician for those orders. Or maybe that's the sole reason you go to ICU rounds is to check in and say who's been intubated for more than 48 hours. Let's get that order and I'll get that set up today. So it's the strategy of how you actually make it happen. And then stakeholders. This is a huge one. Stakeholders are people who have vested interest in the concern or topic of question. So essentially who's got skin in the game, right? So SLP team members, patient and family, registered dietitians, OTPTs, um, nutrition services, physicians, nurse educators, and then policymakers. So like your directors of rehab or other department heads who you might need to be, uh, you know, definitely need to be involving in the process. Um, and so whenever you're implementing a new process or treatment, it has to happen in stages. It cannot happen all at once. So depending on where you look in implementation science, there's anywhere from four to six. I've seen seven stages of a rollout. And of course, each stage has a specific title. So you're going to start in the exploration stage. And this stage is made up of all the concepts that Faith just mentioned. So you're defining your core question or your clinical need. You're figuring out which framework of implementation is going to work for you. And you're identifying your stakeholders. In the next stage, it's called the installation stage. And this is where you're setting up all the players and the equipment. You are researching products. You're acquiring resources. You might be educating and training some, some key staff, but not everyone yet, some of your key stakeholders, and you're really setting the stage for what's to come. After this, you'll be in the initial implementation phase, and this is where you're working out the kinks. You can refer to this as the awkward stage, but you're training the bulk of the staff here. You're developing competencies. You're going back and forth with policymakers or with IT to work out those kind of kinks. Um, and maybe a few people are, are starting to try this new process or this new treatment or whatever it is. And then you're also in this stage starting to take a little bit of data to see if how your strategy is working, both your implementation strategy and your new, your new program, your new concept, um, and making any modifications or improving any areas that need improving. And then in a grossly final stage, you're at full implementation. So this is when everyone starts using the new technique or the new concept. You are continuing to take data during this stage, and you're always analyzing your, your rollout or the implementation to check on things like adoptability, ease of delivery, and sustainability. 
Um, and I will get into all of that next. But the full implementation phase is not the end. This will forever be a process in motion. You can't just say, hey, there's a new thing we're doing. Here it is. Do it forever. Bye. Um, you have to continue to take data, check in, and make sure that it's it's still working and working for the patients and also for the people that are using it or doing it. So implementation science offers a wide range of methods to evaluate the impact of new or existing programs, policies, practices. And as I said, it's really important to collect data. Um, and that's for two outcomes. That's for your patient outcomes. So these are the results related to the specific patients. So for the example of introducing a new protocol for post-extubation dysphagia evaluation, we could be looking at something like pneumonia rates or reintubation rates before and after adopting the new order set. You can also look at areas like length of stay, hospital costs, complication rates. And then you're looking at your implementation outcomes. So this would evaluate the adoption, adaption, delivery, and sustainment of the evidence-based intervention that you introduced. So you can take staff surveys asking for input. You can talk to admin about calculating the costs associated with your project um, and really just checking in to make sure the intended outcome is happening and that everyone is using it and with ease. So another huge part of implementation science and a very helpful part is guidance in determining barriers, barriers and determinants. So you have some general barriers that are pretty pervasive to most projects and most settings. And then you'll have to look within your facility or organization and then your, your project regarding some more specific barriers and determinants. So for general barriers, allotted time. I think this is a huge one. Um, allotted time to read the literature. Allotted time to figure out how to translate new methods into practice. And then the caseload, workload, productivity constraints. That, that tend to keep us doing the easier, less time-consuming, and more comfortable methods. And then another huge and very general barrier is access to research. So can you access literature from home or just from your work computer? Does your work even offer free access to literature? Is it available from like a Google search or do you have to email the librarian? And this is also monetary access. With new concepts, there's always costs associated and who is going to foot that bill. Lack of funds or resources is a real barrier for most people in most settings. And then knowledge and skills. There are a few studies that have asked clinicians what they feel are their biggest barriers to applying literature. And clinicians, by and large, don't feel confident or competent in concepts like statistical analysis, lit searches, how to appraise the research, and understand applicability to their own patient populations or lack thereof. Um, because we get some training in grad school, and a lot of that is very good, but I myself didn't feel prepared to continue to do that on my own for my patient populations. And then looking more specifically into your own setting, implementation science provides a systematic approach to facilitating behavior change. So how do we get people to change their behavior and their practice and what's keeping them from doing so? And this is not like trying to change bad behavior. No one's in trouble. This is behavior in the sense of how one responds to a situation or a diagnosis. So first, you want to identify the desired behavior change. So going back to face example, 
Our desired behavior change is that all patients intubated for greater than 48 hours get a swallow study. Then you'll want to look at current behavior patterns. So, for example, maybe the nurses are doing bedside swallow screens. Maybe speech pathologists are counting coughs and only looking for overt signs of aspiration or even holding on, holding on to that age-old rule of waiting 24 hours post-extubation to even start making a plan for the patient. Those are all current behaviors. So after identifying your desired behavior change and your current behavior pattern, you can start to identify key determinants of those current behaviors and barriers and start looking at the new desired behavior. So some key determinants of current behavior um, would be system one thinking. So that's a type of intuition-based, but not necessarily scientifically substantiated thinking pattern. It relies on learned methods and comfort. It's quick, it's automatic. It's, this is how I was taught and the way I've done it for the last nine years, this works. You know, but in contrast, system two thinking is the evidence-based practice pattern. It's deliberate, it's strategic thinking, and it's considerate of all the available information. So the most up-to-date research, the patient's whole story, this is where the critical thinking comes in. Um, and that system one versus system two thinking is, is part of the dual process theory. And another key determinant would be productivity requirements and time constraints, as I mentioned before. We all have them. So for this example that Faith gave, it's much quicker to give PO trials at bedside and manage dysphagia clinically than it is to get orders for and schedule a modified barium swallow, wait for transport, get the patient to fluoro, or go and get your fees cart, set up the equipment, do the study, break down everything, take the scope to sterile processing. That all takes so much more time, and we have productivity requirements. So, and also um, such that's, constrained um, resources. Like we don't have. Do yeah. you have like a rehab aid? At some places I've worked, I have, but I don't right now. And so I'm doing all of that, and it's a necessary part of the job. But I think it's something. And this is sorry, I totally cut you off, Jane. This is where <laughs> it. Um, thinking of it from a interdisciplinary uh, standpoint, it's not just. Maybe that means that we need to get radiology on board. Maybe they're one of our stakeholders and we can tell them like, this is a real barrier to getting the patients what they need. And then they can say, Oh, if that's the case, well, we'll just call you in the patients here. Don't come down before then. We'll give you this workstation. And if you do get down here and you have to wait for the radiologist, just chart or, you know, review your next patient, right? So it's not all on us to figure out, excuse me, the solution to that problem, which is what I love about implementation science. Yeah. I love yeah. that. I, I remember when I worked in a facility and my the owner of the company was like, why is your productivity so bad? I'm like, because I do so many other things. And he's like, well, aren't you utilizing the rehab aids? And I was like, no, OT and PT have four of them. I've never once been told that I could ask them to do anything. And he was like, oh, well, I just assumed you would use them too. I'm like, no, I can never get them away from PT and OT. Totally. <laughs> That was a huge thing because then they ended up scheduling my modifieds. They ended up coordinating with fees. Like they ended up doing so much of that stuff. And it was a huge, huge, huge help. So, yes. And by identifying these constraints and these barriers and your stakeholders, you can really start to then look at solutions. Make some moves. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And then one last key determinant for current behavior I'd like to mention is just medical training. This might be a barrier too. And so identifying places where 
one might need more training or identifying other stakeholders that can help with specific training that we're not necessarily handed. This is on on the job learning. This is constant learning. Um, but that could be a big barrier too. In terms of barriers, and this is, you know, definitely workplace uh, or organizational dependent, but also thinking about the decision-making capital you have on a team. So most of my experience, six years, has been on call, was on call working at two or three hospitals at a time. I loved it. It worked with my lifestyle. But one thing I did not have was decision-making capital. It was very hard to go on a team where you weren't full-time and say, hey, I just read this paper. Let's implement this. You know, they're looking at you like you're here two days a week, like, no, or, or whatever. That's not necessarily, that's not necessarily how it goes. But thinking about, you know, what's my role on the team? Have I been here for six months or have I been here for 25 years? Am I a lead? Do I have a formal leadership role? Um, is there even a lead SLP on our team? A lot of times there isn't. Um, or thinking about, do I have uh, my BCS or not? So I think when we're thinking about making decisions, we have to think about how much capital we have. Oh, fellows, right? Versus someone who's staff. Like, it's just, I think it has to be considered that sometimes it's not enough to say, I read this paper. Can we start doing this? It, you have to kind of consider the whole, the context. I, I love that phrase, decision-making capital. But yeah, I think that's a great term to, that you used, Faith. And how can you boost your capital in that area? Like you said, if you are someone that only is at a place two, three days a week or... Yeah, cool. What do you think, Jane? Contemporary practice? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So we wanted to provide some more examples of types of contemporary practices that can and should be implemented because we have all of these concepts that are evidence-based and have undergone scientific rigor that we know will be valuable for our patients, but that we're not widely incorporating. And this includes things like trait teams, RMST, swallow studies versus thickening liquids at bedside, cost testing, um, and lymphedema treatment for head and neck cancer. And herein lies that no-do gap that Faith was talking about. We know these things are great. We know they are useful. They're applicable to our patient populations, yet we're not all incorporating them. Mm -hmm. So implementation science is really a great tool to ensure that we as practitioners evolve with the research. It helps us do that, gives us a framework to do that. Yep. And I think that these are kind of hot topics and for good reason. I'm not disputing that at all. Um, but I think one thing that often gets sort of pushed to the, not pushed to the wayside, it's often treated as like a supplement or a bonus or an add-on is the conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think if we're really talking about what is evidence-based and established that helps patient outcomes, we have to talk about the demographics of our workforce. We have to talk about the fact that there's, you know, 91% of our field is white and that those numbers are not proportionate with the demographic makeup of our country or of the patients we serve. And we also know that there's evidence to support representation of racial and ethnic minorities in healthcare and that there are benefits when there's concordance in race and ethnicity between patient and provider, that there are benefits in patient outcomes. Patient satisfaction is better, um, improved treatment completion, and also the likelihood that you'll even visit your provider. And so I know I have felt this personally in so many ways, um, and it kind of works itself out in the literature as well. And so I think if you are on a team, a SLP team or a rehab team, and your team does not represent or reflect the patients you serve, then there's a huge opportunity here to 
create a program or strategy that addresses this issue through recruitment and retention initiatives for your students, your fellows, and your staff. And IS is how you do that, in my opinion. But we can't just look at these, you know, SEMG, RMST, yes, absolutely 100%. But let's also talk about the concordance between patients and providers. Oh, so eloquently stated, Faith. Oh, thank, thank you. I feel very strong. <laughs> I feel very strong. Well, it's evident. Yeah, you can you can speak yeah, beautifully when you're so passionate about a topic. Yeah, that was that was that was awesome. I want to stand up and clap for you. So, <laughs> so what role does um, implementation science play in our clinical practice? I think we've kind of said this already, but. For me, it gives me language and terminology to use to engage with researchers, to talk to administrators and other stakeholders. The language, I think, is super important, and we know that as SLPs, how important language is, um, and being specific with your words. Um, and I also think that for Jane and I, I'm already laughing, I can't even get it out. <laughs> for, for Jane and I, we have so many ideas. We get so excited about so many things, and it's like constant like the texting, the calling, the FaceTiming about all of these things. And so we get overwhelmed with all of these ideas. And for us, implementation science is a way for us to like put on the brakes, take a step back and like actually focus on what our core question is. And then we can decide the framework or the theory. And it gives us a clear path forward versus our instinct is like, let's just jump in. Let's do Yes. Yes. And we're like in the deep end. And then we're like, whoa, (laughs) what happened? Let me ask you guys, do do you guys have a specific, might be a very general question, a very specific framework or theory that you tend to use more often than others or that you, you favor? I think it really depends. Like the most recent project we've been talking about, we started with one and that was probably when we were working on our presentation for the conference. I feel like that was the part, don't you think, Jane, that we just ended up spinning our wheels the most on? That we were just trying to figure out which angle and like we ended up changing our core clinical question because of the questions we were answering from a framework. We were like, Oh, well actually that's not what our question is. And so it there's, it's, and there's over 60. So like in and of itself, you can get super overwhelmed by just trying to find the right framework. And I think it just has to be super specific and tailored to what you're doing. And there's some really good um, like available uh, like webinars online that, that walk you through how to pick the right framework um, or the right theory. And so that's definitely how we've approached it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about when, when you go to roll out a new you know, framework or theory, are you very specific in how you discuss that with coworkers, colleagues, you know, do you say, Oh, this is this framework and this is how we're going to roll it out. Or is it more of just like a lead by example type thing? often a lead by example and it, it gets modified along the way. So it often starts with maybe introducing a concept and then getting a bit of feedback and then starting a plan. And that plan tends to change as you go and as you continue to like take that data, get that feedback. Mm-hmm. It also helps when someone comes in and like a colleague comes in and it's just like, are you ever just so frustrated? It's always about like, I had this great idea or this is the thing I thought we were doing. Are we no longer doing it? And my comeback is often, have you heard about it? 100%. Jane's like, if you get stuck, (laughs) 
the answer is implementation science. Like if you're frustrated oh my gosh, about something, I love it, it's implementation it. science. We're like, Jane, yeah. you got it. And you can get like shirts made with that quote or something like that. I love it. I love it. <laughs> awesome. All right. Yeah. I'd love, I'd love to talk about, yeah, sort of some things you wish you had done differently or some things you've, yeah, reflective thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, do we have some reflections. Yeah, we do. <laughs> I feel like there have been so many times more so in the past, I think it happens less now, not that we don't run into stuff, but I think as a early clinician and also just at previous places I've worked, I, I felt like I was falling on my face a lot. And I now looking back like hindsight, I definitely think my, probably my biggest issue was stakeholder engagement from the beginning. So not just going to someone and saying, Hey, this is what I want to do. Let's make it happen. I'm going to start doing it, you know, but really saying, this is the issue I see. Do you see it? First of all, because if we can't agree on that, it's an issue, then right. And then really finding the folks who you want on your team. And um, so stakeholder engagement, that was probably my biggest um, failure. I'm okay saying failure. Um, and then deter- determining the, the core clinical questioner need, selecting the appropriate frameworks and creating a strategy, which is obviously that's a big chunk. But really, I think if you have your stakeholders engaged from the beginning, those other steps come a little easier. Yeah. I think for me, um, I'm, I'm learning the value in patience. I would get so excited about an idea. I knew it was great. I read a paper. I read a few papers, listened to a few podcasts, went to a course, run into my department. And I was that bird that would fly into a window. I would be like, you guys, best idea. Here I come. And then just like not really evaluate my circumstance and fly right into a window, crash and burn. And that was the end. So through implementation science, I'm really learning the value of patience and a process and that there are nonlinear trajectories. There's stages. It's an active process. There's, there's no, there's no start and end. Yeah. And in looking back at those stages and phases, I've been able to evaluate my strategy, evaluate this process. And in doing so, I can make things pretty sustainable and long-term. I've been able to take a step back and, and look at the barriers. It's not just the glass window that I flew into. It's all of it. It's like, it's the stakeholders that Faith mentioned. It's, um, it's views amongst the team. I read a really great article a, a bit ago. It was called, um, the generational differences in work ethic among speech language pathologists. It really changed my way of thinking. I never really considered that those generational differences might have an impact on the adoptability of something new, you know, for better or worse. Um, And the paper went into all different reasons why different generations might take things differently or adopt new concepts in a different manner and how to come together as a team made up of all different ages and stages of speech pathologists to come together for this common core clinical question or concept that you're trying to implement. So it's a good paper. Lots of learning there. Really good yeah, paper. Yeah. yeah. I, I love what you said, Jane, because I think, you know, as, 
as sort of the older I get and the more experienced I get, the more I appreciate patience as well. And I understand that patience is so important in what we do. And I feel like there's so many people that I've talked to that have, you know, rolled out a program or tried to do something else. And it's like, well, how long did it really take you to get that fully implemented in your facility? And they're like, oh, about two years. And it's like, that sounds so painstakingly long at the beginning. But I feel like there's so many conversations I've had with people that they're like, oh, it really took a good two years to get it rolled out. Or it took 18 months to get it really solidified. And, And so that just sounds terrible. But I think for me, I'm like, okay, if this doesn't happen within, you know, 60 to 90 days, it's not the end of the world. You know, we're still Mm -hmm. doing the steps to make it, you know, go forward. And yeah. And I think by, by taking that time, you are ensuring success. You're not, you're not going to leave anything unchecked. You're not going to miss anything because the process is so evaluative and it just, it ensures sustainability slow patient. That is so challenging. (laughs) Faith, I just wanted to ask you, are are there any specific situations you can think of or shareholders that really pushed back against or gave you resistance Mm. on specific projects? That's a good question. For the example that I'm going to talk about now, I wouldn't say it was pushback, but I would say one of two of the things that have been hard are getting everybody at the same place at the same time. Just getting schedules together. It's been hard and it's hard not to, you know, take offense. Like, do you not think this is important? This is really important. Um, and then I would also say for our piece, and we'll talk about this. Um, we give the example doing the nurse education. Our nurse educator was amazing, but there was a lot of, we had to do a lot of revisions on the knowledge translation, knowledge translation and content that we were giving. She would just found a lot of issues with it understandably, like looking at it from her perspective, but I would have never seen that. Nobody on our speech team would have ever thought that there were issues with some of this stuff, but she's like, oh, that's not going to make sense because of X, Y, and Z. We're taught X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, oh, wait, really? You know, and then, and then we reword it or whatever. So I think it was the more challenging part to the rollout, but it was also super like illuminating. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Love that. All right. Let's get into some some success stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm currently working on a project at work and I am in an installation phase. So I'm at this phase where I'm setting up all of the players and the equipment. I've researched products. I will tell you what that is. Um, but I'm acquiring my resources and I'm educating and training some key stakeholders. So I'm really just setting the stage right now for this rollout that I hope will happen. So I had an informal observation that we're not doing much in acute care to target cough strength and secretion management with our patients. And we know that's crucial to mitigating the effects of aspiration. And I also knew there's a well-known evidence-based program to address this. So the need I identified was that as a rehab department, we're not incorporating a widely validated tool into our treatment plans. And that tool is respiratory muscle training. And the more I learned about it, the more I saw that it really spans the disciplines. So my core clinical question kind of expanded as I started looking more into it. So I identified my stakeholders to be the rehab disciplines, PTOT speech, my rehab manager and director, our respiratory therapist, and then our hospital's value analysis committee. And they look at any new medication or physical tool that somebody wants to start using with patients. And so these were care partners that I knew I needed. My next step was knowledge translation. So I first wanted to expand my knowledge by taking a course um, and then and 
listening to podcasts. I did a lot of reading, so many articles. And then I began to engage my stakeholders once I felt a bit more confident in this idea that I was introducing. So I gave a presentation to my SLP colleagues at a staff meeting and got their feedback. And then I spoke with my manager and I got her buy-in by talking about how this might be useful across the disciplines. My manager is not a speech pathologist. She's a wonderful physical therapist. And she was very interested in hearing how this is not just a speech pathology idea. I then gave a bigger presentation in the form of a rehab grand round. And so that presentation was directed toward even more stakeholders. So I was speaking directly to the PTs and the OTs, the respiratory therapists, and some outpatient staff that attended also. And so I did demonstrations, I had sample documentation, and I presented some case studies. And then I also recruited a physical therapist to speak with me at uh, Grand Rounds. And so she spoke from a physical therapist and heart failure standpoint. Um, And this was a really valuable step. I got really good feedback from all disciplines regarding both this concept as a treatment, RMST as a treatment for our patients, but also regarding my implementation strategy. And I got that feedback from such a diverse range of perspectives. So my next steps are waiting for that value analysis committee to approve the actual devices, fingers crossed. And then as a department, we're discussing all the logistics. So how do we go about getting physician orders? What's the role of the evaluator versus the follow-up treatment provider? And I'm also looking into how I am evaluating outcomes. This is such a crucial role. So how will I evaluate patient outcomes? Will I be testing cost strength before and after? Will I be looking at dysphagia severity scores? And then how will I evaluate the outcomes of my implementation strategy? Are people using it? Are they finding it easy to use? Um, are, are logistics seamless. So that's where I'm at now. And I think this is probably my most successful project over the years, just thinking back because I really, I'm going through the steps. I'm taking my time. I am being patient and I'm going through all the steps and it's, it's working, which feels great. You've worked really hard. I'm proud of you. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And we're in the sort of full implementation slash evaluation phase. So the core need that we found was that there were inaccurate or absent follow-through of aspiration precautions or diet textures, strategies, supervision based on whatever the swallow recommendation was. Sorry, swallow evaluation recommendation was. And I think this is something we probably have all seen, right? We walk in and the patient's eating a cheeseburger and that's not the diet that they're were prescribed um, or that, you know, was uh, in their order. And so we identified stakeholders, nurse care managers, SLPs, registered dietitians, the nurse educator, and then our administration point of contact was a clinical nurse advisor and then nutrition services, which is like the kitchen staff and the supervisors. So the strategy was essentially to have placemats for the placed from the kitchen um, on the tray that are yellow, a nursing text order in the medical record, a sticker on those big uh, water bottles that just cues anyone who's walking to the room, oh, there's a yellow sticker. This person has a, a special diet or 
precautions that they need to follow and then also ahead of bedside. So it's a lot of moving parts. Um, what we did for knowledge translation, so getting the information about why we're doing all these things to the right people, um, we did a training video, PowerPoints, and then we would attend um, unit huddles during the shift changes. And then we also created mandatory education um, with a module, including a knowledge check in the form of a quiz. So that's how we made sure that we were all operating on the same kind of page of why this is important and what we're doing. And then it was rolled out in January, even though we had been working on, yeah, we're definitely like at least in the 18 month area for this project. And so since January, since it's rolled out, we've continued to attend unit huddles. We've had surveyors come in and do their site visits and evaluations, and we kind of passed those um, benchmarks. And then we initially started with doing weekly um, audits to track the data. So are we missing, is the kitchen staff missing people's um, uh, placemats? Um, are, is speech forgetting to put in uh, the orders in the medical record? And then we went from weekly to then monthly audits to track that data. And this goes into what Jane was saying about it's a cyclical, ongoing process. There's no real end in sight at this point. And then our next steps are maybe to expand to the other campus to measure dysphagia-specific outcomes and also evaluate the strategy itself by probably doing surveys regarding um, staff perception of the rollout and then also fidelity. So is the strategy being delivered the way it's intended to, or has it kind of shifted over time, which definitely happens. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited for us and the work that we've done. And it's been a neat, neat experience for sure. Awesome. This is amazing. And I just go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Jane. Oh, no, no. I just want to mention that Faith and I are coming at this from an adult dysphagia clinician perspective because that's who we are. That's what we do. Um, but this is a valuable tool. Implementation science is a valuable tool across across the span of speech pathologists. And then, like I mentioned before, there's also the research side. Um, and we need to, both the researchers and the clinicians need to be really good about forming those um, communication bonds so that the researchers are studying concepts that are going to be needed and assistive and that we're reaching out to be like, this is what we need, or like, this was a great tool. However, it didn't work because of such and such. So um, it is not all on the clinician, um, but that's just the perspective that we're approaching this from. Yeah. This is awesome. You guys, this was so, 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 so great. I think you guys are just such phenomenal role models for our field. I think just you know, being passionate about the the subject area and taking the research and implementing it. And I just I can't thank you guys enough. You guys are total rock stars. Thank you. Yeah. We love talking about it. So thanks for giving us. Of course. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's so funny I, when I do these podcasts, people come on and they're like, I don't know what I'm going to say. Like, I hope I talk long enough. And then, you know, an hour goes by in no time. And you know, totally. So, yeah. Cool. Awesome. Do you guys have any, any final thoughts you want to share? This has just been so awesome. I would just encourage people to check out the resources. We tried to keep it fairly brief, but like, there's so much good information out there. And these are just some of our like kind of faves um, that, that I really think that if you are even a little interested or have those moments, like Jane was saying, where you get stuck, just check out the resources. And I think that you'll feel really confident and excited about what implementation science can offer. Awesome. 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 Well, thank you so much, guys. This has been so wonderful. Good. Thank you. 
download the show notes from this episode, please visit SwallowYourPridePodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.